This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul Newth. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, you can reach us at podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> yeah. So, Colleen, I felt really terrible sending you that email a couple of days ago uh, with that the forward of the email from the Wichita ACO about the Me. notice of proposed rulemaking yep. for your spars and... Have you already inspected yours now? You know, so the, the airplane's in the shop for an avionics upgrade, and they're going to have to run some wires across the uh, top. So the headliner's coming down anyway, which is quite an ordeal. So I'm going to go up to the shop and do my spar inspection while they're installing the radios. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here's the thing, because we went through all this with the 210s, and now not only do the Cardinals get it, but also the later models, the 210s. And... The AD is, came out for those that was slightly different than the service letters, but if you do this service letter per the service letter, that sounded strange, almost certainly you'll be in compliance with the AD should it actually happen. So the, the big deal is getting the eddy current, but I suspect that you probably have access to plenty of eddy current people in your neighborhood. I do not. And I have to admit, oh. I, I read the NPRM very late at night on Monday when you sent it out, and I found it pretty convoluted. And <laughs> I wasn't yeah. sure if I was required to do an eddy current. So I guess it sounds like I am. Well, go read the service letters. Because okay. the, the AD, in terms of what will be done, not when it's done, but what and how it will be done, will be referenced in the service letter, more than likely. Uh, and it requires specific primers. You're going to finish the uh, spar after you've blended all the corrosion bits, should you have any. You'll sand it with some three grit, three, 320 grit paper, and then you're going to prime it, and then you're going to coat it in CIC. And so if you're going to do it before the AD comes out, just be sure that you do it exactly per the service letter, including the type of materials. And you can get variances, they did on the 210s as well, but if you can, do it per the letter and then you're probably gonna be fine. But is, is, is eddy current inspection unconditionally required or only under certain circumstances? And for the 210s, it was required. 
for all. So you did a visual, you got rid of all the pits visibly, time stand magnifying inspection, and then you did an eddy current of at least the kickout area, which is a an area on the lower flange where it changes direction. The Cardinal spar is very similar to the 210 spar, but usually if you're gonna go to all the trouble to get an eddy current uh, person out to your airplane, just go ahead and do the entire bottom of the spar and do the, the front edges. We did the top of the spar flanges as well, not part of the AD or the service bulletin, but you know, found a few spots where we could just you know do a little extra sanding and took care of those as well. So it, it won't cost you any extra. Our next question is from Jackson, who wants to know once and for all whether shock cooling is a real problem. Welcome to the show, Jackson. Oh, hi, thanks. Yeah, so um, I'm just a, a, a dumb old tow pilot for my soaring club here in Minnesota, and uh, we fly a uh, Super Cub with a 160 horsepower air-cooled engine, and uh the FAA has asked us when we break left with the tow plane uh, that we need to descend 500 feet immediately after release. And we have a, a CHT monitor in the plane that shows temperatures usually around 420, 430 on hot summer days. And they drop down to about 350, 370 by the time the plane returns to the airport. And on cooler days, sometimes those temps are 400 to 410. On a busy day, we're towing 18 to 25 gliders from 9 to 3 p.m., Almost all the toes are going to be at 3,000 feet above ground. The field elevation is 900. The gliders are anywhere from 400-pound single-place gliders to two-place 900-pound, 1,000-pound gliders. So last season, we had, I think, two cracked spark plugs. And in the past, we've had cracked cylinders. Uh, we've changed some baffles around, uh, fixed an exhaust stack that was producing too much carbon monoxide in the, in the uh, cabin. I haven't heard about any crack cylinders in the last few years, uh, and we have some really good mechanics that help us out. But the question is, uh, you know, if we're breaking left and dropping 500 feet as quick as possible, uh, some people have said, is that a wise idea? Because we could uh, shock cool the engine. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's sort of an ongoing discussion. Uh, some of the mechanics saying, oh, don't shock cool the engine ever. Um, but I've only ever seen stuff about shock cooling with turbocharged engines. So... I was hoping you all could answer this burning question we all have. Well, I can take a, a, a crack to start with. I don't know if if you've got any kind of an engine monitor that shows the cooling rate on those things. I suspect maybe you don't on the Super Cub, but Lycoming has a recommendation somewhere or other. I don't know where I saw it, but Lycoming recommends limiting the cooling rate to no more than 60 degrees per minute. Now, I have an engine monitor on my Cessna 310, and I've set an alarm to go off if the cooling rate is greater than 30 degrees per minute, which is way more conservative than what Lycoming's recommendation is. And I can tell you it's, it's quite hard to get that alarm to go off. You have to do a, a, you know, a very major slam dunk kind of thing where you pull a throttle back to idle and stick the nose down. And uh, my guess is I probably couldn't get it to cool 60 degrees per minute. Uh, you know, even if I was trying, that's, that's, that's pretty hard to do. So, you know, there, there is, like I say, there is a specific recommendation from Lycoming, but it's, 
it's 60 degrees per minute is a very rapid cool down. The other thing is I have never heard of spark plugs cracking because of uh, anything like, like shock cooling. The cracked spark plugs are typically caused either by some sort of detonation or pre-ignition event going on in the cylinder. They can also be caused by a mechanic dropping the spark plug and not fessing up that he did it. No. Um, it never happens, right? Never happens. And, yeah. Is that why? Is that why you have foam rubber on the floor of your maintenance <laughs> hanger? Mattresses. <laughs> <laughs> drop it once, you drop it twice. But you know, having said all of that, I you know I, I'm I'm a big believer in any in a piston airplane that that you move the power lever you know smoothly and not you know jerk it real fast or anything like that. But I can't imagine that that cooling has anything to do with the cracked spark plug. As far as cracked cylinders are concerned, that's a that that's a, another really interesting issue, because in our experience, about half the time that AMPs report uh, cracked cylinders, they aren't really cracked, and we always insist that anything that looks like a crack, first of all, be sanded smooth as as much as possible, and then dye penetrant applied to it to see if this. Thing that looks like a crack has any any uh, significant depth to it and an awful lot of the time it turns out that they're non-issues an awful lot of cylinders have been pulled off unnecessarily you know sometimes there, there are real cracks but typically if 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 the crack isn't isn't blue because it's seeping fuel it's really it tends to be a non-issue i've never heard of a cylinder head crack resulting in any sort of catastrophic failure and uh, a lot of things that are diagnosed as cracks actually turn out not to be cracks. If you if you do a dye pen, they magically disappear. Especially a continental from the spark plug to the injector nozzle. That's that's the standard place for those yeah. cylinders to crack. <laughs> but this is this is a this is a super cub with lycoming in it. Right, lycoming cylinder heads don't crack all that often. Jackson, if you do an internet search on glider tow planes and shock cooling, uh, you'll pop up a, an AvWeb article that addresses that specifically, written in 2018 by Rick Durden. And he points out that lots of operations in aircraft uh, should result in shock cooling and don't have any evidence of that. Things like touch and goes at flight schools, they don't have higher incidences of cracked cylinders. And he points out specifically that Bob Hoover used to shut the engine off on his strike right. <laughs> and do all kinds of crazy things. And he didn't have yes. any issues with that. And he actually even um, talked about John Deacon writing about losing an engine in flight because he ran a tank dry. And it was off for 18 seconds with an engine monitor and it only cooled 10 degrees. So he calls it an aviation myth that should uh, be retired. Yeah. I love the Bob Hoover uh, reference. I never really thought about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's helpful to know because I, I know when, when we break left and drop 500 feet, I our engine monitor, to Mike, to your uh, point, our engine monitor does go from green to flashy blue if you start cooling it too quickly. So I've, mm -hmm. I've occasionally seen the little flashy blue bar pop up, and then usually I just pitch up and it, it stops. Uh, that's the extent of my knowledge of the cylinder head temp monitor on there. Um, don't let it go flashy blue. At what cooling rate does it does it alarm? Yeah, that's the thing. It's a settable alarm. 
That's over my my volunteer pay grade. Black, <laughs> I don't know black, what it says on there. Blue. Is this what is this a like an insight monitor? Yeah, what, it's a cylinder head temp monitor. I don't even oh. know who makes it. I wish I'd taken a picture. Oh, I, um, yeah, I, but it's got green bars, and it shows each cylinder. And then if you cool it too quickly, uh, the bar switches to blue, and it starts flashing at you. Yeah, that sounds that's like an it sounds like it might be yeah, an inside G two or G three or something. Well, I think if in fact you had cracked cylinders, and we're, we'll assume that you did, since the maintenance pulled them off, your CHT is running four hundred and thirty, even though in your Lycoming red line is what five hundred. I, I think that uh, that's pretty hot, even for a Lycoming. That's that's a lot of heat there, so I would think that has a lot more to do with it than shock cooling would. We normally like to see Lycoming cylinders not not exceed 420 or so. Yeah, that that just uh, we never get below 420 on a July day when we're towing 18 <laughs> gliders in a yeah, row. Sure. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, glider towing is definitely a uh, High challenging stress. thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, how many of you guys are glider r- rated? I actually have a commercial glider rating, but I haven't flown a glider in years. It, that, that was an awful lot of fun, though. I used to fly them all the time. I want, I've want. i never flown a glider. There's no shock pulling in yeah. gliders. <laughs> <laughs> I've flown in one. I don't have the rating. I've never flown. I don't particularly need a rating, but I would love to go flying in a glider. They're, they're awesome. They're, yeah, they're a lot of fun. Well, well, Jackson, that was a great, great question, and uh, we really appreciate you dialing in. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, and I'll look up that article. I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. All right. Take care. See you, Jackson. Our next question is from Bob, who has a complicated but simple question about airworthiness. Welcome to the show, Bob. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to... Uh, be with you guys here. And boy, I wish you guys could come by my hangar. I've got a ton of questions you could answer for me. Do you have any beer in the fridge? We'll be right there. (laughs) You betcha. Well, uh, I listened to uh, one of your podcasts uh, a couple months ago, uh, and you were discussing, uh, among other things. You were the listener. I knew there was somebody out there. Yes, yes, that was me. Uh, You were discussing the uh, Rosen sun visors and the way they have their STC worded. And you suggested that maybe uh, a Form 337 needed to be completed on some of those. But then you kind of touched on dealing with uh, undocumented alterations, uh, alterations that don't appear in the logbook. And you suggested that by making the appropriate logbook entry that uh, you could correct the situation. Well, my thought went to my 50-plus-year-old airplane and some of the things that are in the airplane that I don't see any entries about. And I'm wondering if you've had an airplane that's had an undocumented alteration, and maybe it's more uh, of a intrusive type of install, like a, a non-TSO'd instrument or uh, uh, avionics or non-approved aircraft instrument lighting, uh, for example, does that render the aircraft unairworthy as a result of that install? And will simply removing the non-approved modifications restore the airworthiness? And is that something the owner pilot could do themselves to correct and legally remedy the situation? Boy, that's that's a long question. That, that's a multi-part <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, that that's. I mean, first of all, in principle, if if something is put on an airplane that shouldn't have been put on it, I, I'm 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 choosing my words carefully now. 
that would render the aircraft unairworthy, and removing the thing that shouldn't have been put on it would render it airworthy again. None of that can be done by the owner because owners are permitted to do preventive maintenance, but they're and and preventive maintenance actually is a fairly broad umbrella of things that that you can do, but an owner is not authorized to make any alterations. So uh, it requires an A&P mechanic to make an alteration. And to undo an alteration is, is itself an alteration. So it requires an A&P to, to undo the, the dastardly deed that was done. Now, if you find an alteration that has been made in the past and somehow not documented in the maintenance records, that doesn't necessarily mean that the aircraft is unairworthy, that alteration may be okay. It's just undocumented, and that's that can be rectified. If it's a minor alter, you have to determine whether it's a minor alteration or a major alteration. If it was a minor alteration, it would have been just documented on a on a regular logbook entry. And since you're only required to keep logbook entries for for up to one year, it really doesn't matter that it's undocumented. If it's a major alteration, it's supposed to be documented on a form three thirty seven that gets sent to the FAA in Oklahoma City and becomes part of the aircraft's permanent uh, record down there. So if there's a major alteration that is undocumented, then you really ought to document it. And it's and, and the way you document it is, is you get some IA to inspect the alteration and, and determine that it's copacetic, and then he can sign a, a form 337 that says that describes the alteration and it says you know this was done by persons unknown at time unknown but but indicates what the approved data was and file it and you could file it you know 30 years after the alteration was made and just correct the the hole in the in in, in the maintenance records I mean, it's not like they're going to go after you if you've been unairworthy for the last 20 years. What's really important is going forward, if you get caught, you, right? But Well, not now that he's been on the show. (laughs) 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 Didn't didn't he he start this question by saying a friend of mine? I know a guy. I always start (laughs) these kind of questions with I know a guy. (laughs) But, but, you know, the, the fact that, that an alteration was made that wasn't documented doesn't make the airplane unairworthy. Okay. It, because the alteration may have been perfectly airworthy. And airworthiness is a, is, is a condition of the airplane. But that's kind, of, that's kind of like saying if a tree falls and nobody's there to hear it, it didn't really fall. I mean, it, I'm not sure I buy that argument, Mike. I, I think that's, I mean, the the... You know, just because the documentation isn't there, the alteration has still been made. And it's not a complete iteration unless the documentation is matched up with the actual work. I could see if someone took a wing off, you know, to go to the extreme and didn't document it. Yeah, we could have a discussion about that. That could be interesting. Well, there would there would be a violation involved. Okay. Yeah, well, that's but, the important but, part, but, right? But that, does, but that doesn't mean that the airplane's unairworthy. Yeah, I grant you that. that that's those true. Are, those are sort of two separate issues. 
And and your point that documents only need to be kept for a year, so that really important documentation, if it was a minor alteration after a year, who cares if it's in the books or not? That that was also a very interesting um, observation. I, I mean, let let's let, let me take another extreme. Uh, Paul had an extreme of taking off the wing. I'll have the <laughs> extreme, which happens a lot more often, by the way, that all the all the maintenance records have vanished. Okay. In a divorce, typically. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly. Uh, but the fact that all maintenance records are missing doesn't mean that the that the airplane is somehow reduced to, to trash. It just means that some work needs to be done to get it past its next annual inspection. I'll, I'll um, agree with that one. I'll buy that. I see that, yep. The, the, uh, for example, AD, if you lose all... all evidence of AD compliance. You, you may have to recomply with some ADs because you can't prove that they were complied with and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the fact that something's undocumented doesn't mean that the airplane is unairworthy. It just means that that in some cases, if it's particularly if it's a major alteration or an AD or something important, that, that the maintenance records have to get brought up to date. And what yeah. of the what of the uh, non TSO equipment being installed? Uh, what is the ramifications of that? Well, the, I mean, I don't think that that's really an issue. There's no there's no requirement that the only things you can install an airplane have to be TSO. What about avionics? I mean, for well, you know, perfect example. I think that you know, King had a. KX-155, which was non-TSO'd, and a KX-165 that was TSO'd. And there are a lot of KX-155s flying around. I had one in my airplane until not very long ago. That doesn't make the airplane unairworthy because there's no requirement that things be TSO'd. Really? Yeah. I got some shopping I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Air but, but, coming but, up. <laughs> but, but yeah. on the other hand, uh, th- that's different from saying, you know, whether it is acceptable for installation in a certificated airplane. I mean, there's there's a lot of experimental avionics that are sold for experimental aircraft only, and 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 you're not you, you can't put those in a certificated airplane without a field approval. And typically, you won't get a field approval for something like that. Okay. So it depends on how wild and crazy the the thing that you're talking about is. But just the fact that there, that uh, an instrument or a radio is, is non-TSO doesn't necessarily make, make it a, a non-acceptable for installation. Good. I don't want to go to jail. Not that I know that there's anything wrong. <laughs> no. From the guy that called you about this yeah, problem that asked you friend. to call us. Yes. I got to go help him remove some pages from his <laughs> logbook. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Did we did we get uh, his address and stuff for the FA on no. like we do with everybody else? Uh, oh. Bob Baffert, uh, Kentucky Derby, stall <laughs> three. Yes. <laughs> well, that simple question proved to be a lot more complicated than we originally thought, Bob. That was a good one. <laughs> Short question, long answer, right? Yeah, you can always get a long answer from us. So thanks very much for uh, coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Our next question is from Dave, who's looking for some better EGT numbers. Go ahead, Dave. Yes, as a matter of fact, I uh, fly a Lancer. I'm living in the Netherlands, and I'll fly this Lancer for about uh, 20 years already. 
It had a new engine when I started it, and it has always been running uh, at about 62% of power. Uh, ECT uh, 1400 Fahrenheit or 1400 Fahrenheit, whatever you say at the other side of the ocean. And then I could lean to about 9.2 gallon per hour. Um, in the meantime, uh, I once had a Mac replaced. That was the, the snap-off Mac. It's, by the way, uh, slick magnets. Uh, everything was adjusted. And again, it was 9.2. 1,400, every setting was okay. A couple of months ago, the right magnet was, let's say, reconditioned, more inspected than reconditioned. It was put to the engine again. It's an IO360, by the way. And everything was adjusted. Uh, the mechanic found that the snap-off magnet was a little bit out of tune. It was actually standing a little bit too late. And everything was adjusted at about 25 degrees again or exactly at 25 degrees. And after that, I've seen higher temperatures. I can't lean below, let's say, something like 10 gallons. And then I get 1,400 Fahrenheit again. But if I try to lean to uh, 9.2, what it always has been, then I'm getting over to like 1,460, 1,470. Um, it's not, a, let's say, the exact value of the ECT that's worrying me as it is well below limits uh, that um, Lycoming is, uh, is telling me. But it's, let's say, the unexplained change that I all of a sudden see. We inspected it twice. We have replaced the new spark plugs that were also uh, combined with the Mac adjustment with the old ones again, same picture. We have built in the new ones again, same picture. So it's just this thing that is changing. And I always, if I fly in an airplane and something changes, uh, changes what I cannot explain, I don't feel happy about it. That's the question, basically. Yeah, that's the problem with flying one airplane for so long. You get really into that one airplane and when something changes. It becomes your second body. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But how do you know it was right to begin with? I mean, why do you think that it was better before than it is now? It, I always noted the values. You know, when I flew it new, of course, you note everything because you want to have a log of it. Uh, we need quite in the Netherlands anyway since it's an uh, experimental. So we make these logs. And all the times you do maintenance uh, each year, you log everything again again. And it always has been on the same level and always temperatures and, and leaning to the same level. And just after this last time of change, something is weird and I can't explain it. Well, so in general, if you have retarded timing, you said seven degrees late on that one magneto. If the timing occurs late, you may have lower cylinder head temperatures, but much higher exhaust gas temperatures. If the timing is advanced, you'll have higher cylinder head temperatures, meaning you're developing a lot more power, but your exhaust gas temperatures can be lower. Just That's to, what just I had to, expected, you know. Right. Because I, I said this one was, it was seven degrees late. The other one I didn't know because it was taken off the engine. It was uh, overhauled and then taken on the engine on 25 degrees again. But the other one was late. So if you adjust that, uh, let's say, to uh, earlier timing, you expect that the ECT would drop. Instead, everything going up. 
Hmm. So that's the weird thing about it. I have a couple of questions because I'm not sure I totally understand the situation here. One question is, what EGT are you talking about? I take it you have an engine monitor installed, so you've got... Oh, no, no, that's, that's indeed one of the problems. Uh, I have the uh, CHT of the left rear cylinder, and I have the AGT at the um, right side rear cylinder. So oh. it's just on one, it's not an engine monitor. I admit that's, that's something okay. that is a little bit... Uh, uh, yeah, so you, you know, really. but when I built the whole thing, I was a little bit out of money, so that's what happens. <laughs> okay, so you really don't know what's going on. My second question is when you lean to 9.2 gallons an hour, ignoring the EGT, but does the engine run smoothly? Is everything okay? Yeah, no problem. No problem. Well, why, why do you care what your EGT is? Yeah, is, that's, is that's what everybody's telling me. That was <laughs> the mechanic also said to me, well, don't care about it. You've checked it twice together with me and everything is on 25, so it should be fine. And uh, it's well within the limits. But I hate the idea, as I said, if something is different than it was before, I like to know why it is in that way, you know. Otherwise, I don't feel secure. You right. know, well, you know, there's values. I've seen those values about 19 years, and they always have been the same. And suddenly after an overhaul, something is changing, and they expect something is wrong. That's the whole story. Yeah. Well, this is this is the time when you really wish you had an engine monitor because you would know what was going on. But that, you know, there, there are two things that could cause your EGT to have gone up. Uh, one Paul mentioned already, which is that the ignition timing is retarded from what it used to be. And the other is that you have a spark plug that isn't firing or not firing reliably. And if if you had an engine monitor, you'd know precisely because you'd see whether it was just one EGT that was going up or whether all six EGTs were going up or four, I guess, in your case. But without an engine monitor, you're kind of flying blind. So it's it's a little hard to, to know what's going on because there, we don't have much data to go on. No, that's true. That that's I fully admit that, that uh, you're more or less blind to this one cylinder and you don't have any idea that uh, what's in the other cylinders is going on. As a matter of fact, that I still is a working probe in uh, the left rear cylinder, and I'm just in the process of hooking that up uh, because I'm also getting close to the point I'm 73 now and I don't feel too old to fly. But anyway, I'm in the process of, let's say, uh, to find somebody that is willing to take over the lens. So at this point, installing an expensive uh, engine monitor is a little bit too much, but it was my idea if I can hook up the other probe again, and this is also K-type probe, then I can see at least that cylinder and then I have two cylinders which I can uh, compare to each other. You know, it's not a full monitor, of course, but anyway, it's better than just one cylinder. Two is better than one, anyway. Well, Mike always likes to say that EGTs are just a number, but they don't really represent anything real. But I do understand that you're reporting a relative change and you should look at EGTs and their, and their movement, you know, but usually we look at EGTs in relation to each other across the cylinders, not as a function of time or overhaul. Um, the real number that's important is your CHT. If your CHT is within limits and the engine's smooth, like Mike's asking, you should be fine. And, and I wouldn't be so concerned about it. 
Anyway, Dave, I, I'm with you. I would like to know what's going on, but I'm, I'm afraid we probably can't help you with the information that you've given us. So I just suggest keep the airplane. I, I, I think it will be very good luck for me if somebody would have a, a very good idea all of a sudden, but I, I didn't expect that. I just wanted to share the problem. And of course, I keep working to it. And sooner or later, I either sell the plane or find the problem by installing more probes or whatever, or even a complete monitor on it. And then uh, I'll at least can, uh, let's say, send an email and say, well, this is what I found and that's how I solved the problem. Yeah, we'll be watching for that. Okay. I think, I think you would, uh, given how much monitoring and how careful you are and uh, attention to the numbers, I think you would really love a full engine monitor. Just, just saying. Or his head will explode with information overload, one of the two. <laughs> At any rate, good luck with that. And, and we really do appreciate your question, Dave. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. So next up is Jeremy, who's got a uh, kind of a strange stall warning problem. Go ahead, Jeremy. Let us know what's up. Yeah. Hi. Um, I fly a 1979 Piper Archer, and um, I've had it for about three years. When I first got it, I had to replace the stall warning horn on it. Uh, it wasn't contacting, wasn't making any noise. And ever since then, it has not gone off at the, the stall speed time. So it doesn't matter if it's on landing or if I'm up doing air work or whatnot. Uh, it, works for, it works all the time on the ground now, so the wiring works. Comfortable doing proactive maintenance, just wondering if this is a can of worms or something that is a simple problem. Oh, gosh. Now, that was two questions in there. So I'm only good at one at a time. Now, you said you replaced the stall warning horn, but I, I, I gather you what you really replaced was the stall, the stall warning sensor, correct? Yes. The switch? Yeah, that's correct. Sorry. And those things are god-awful expensive. For they are. That I've never been able to understand. Yeah, so it has to be installed correctly. You can't just bolt it in. It's not a plug-and-play kind of thing. There's a lot of adjusting that needs to be done. Did anyone go up and install the airplane and get it all set? Or did they just put it in and decide it was okay? Um, oh, see, you just answered it. <laughs> so my if mechanic you, uh, has not test flown it, per se. is relying on my feedback. Right. So what, what has to be done is the switch has to be adjusted. Because the little tab that sticks out into the airflow either goes up or down, depending on your angle of attack. So you have to adjust the position of that new switch such that it flips from up or down when you're at the proper angle of attack. So it gets calibrated, you're saying, Paul. Those things, if memory serves, those things that have the, the screws go in a, into slots so that you can slide the thing up or down and get it right where you, you want it, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. Then somebody has to figure out whether to move it up or down to you make it. You have the, to take it flying, Paul? I mean, yeah, there's no there's, way to calibrate on the ground. No, no way to, well, I mean, if, if you had some, you know, if you were Colleen and, you know, knew all the right people that had wind tunnels and stuff like that, you could disassemble <laughs> yeah. the wing and take it wind in. Tunnels. But. <laughs> well, how about if you took out the old one, could you mark where the, where it was and then put the new one in exactly the same place or would that not work? Or is that too smart? No. Well, you, you think you can. But the problem is 
it's not just the position of the switch, but the angle of the tab. So the old tab has been out there, it's been caught on people's belt loops and stuff over the last 30 or 40 years. It was twisted, it was mangled, whatever it was. You put the new one in and the tab is at a certain, not only at a certain position on the leading edge, but at an angle. And so that angle changes when it's going to deflect up or down. So you do have to go out and it's a flight test event. You go out and do some stalls, get a lot of practice doing stalls though. And so Jeremy, what you're saying is that that you can do a full aerodynamic stall of the airplane and the horn never goes off. Right. So so the the sensor obviously has to be slid upward and how far is going to be a matter of trial and error. Yeah, so mark it first. Make a mark so you know where it is now so that each time you move it you can you know exactly how far you've moved it. Okay, so it it sounds like you're saying that it's possible to take the cover plate off and adjust the tab and then go for a flight test. Right, you just have to loosen the four screws and it it moves it'll move up a little bit. Now would Jeremy have to do that with his mechanic or is he allowed to do that as a pilot? Yeah, this is this is with your mechanic kind of thing. Yeah. So you'll have to take your mechanic flying. Yeah. Ooh. Darn. Or you, no, you can you can just say to the mechanic, hey, you do you mind do you mind if I if I fiddle with this and then will you inspect it and sign it off after I'm done, right? Oh sure, yeah. But it's way more fun to take the mechanic with you because if he's not a pilot, <laughs> stalls are an event. Yeah. Stalls, yeah. <laughs> do a spin while you're at it. <laughs> or or take your dog with you and float the dog. <laughs> Now, now here's our question. Um, Installation of that, is the instructions for the need to calibrate in the airframe maintenance manual or where? You know, know, I've never never looked it up. It would have to be there. I've never seen that before, but I've never replaced one, so never had to adjust one. Yeah, I'm guessing it is. I think it is in in the maintenance manual, and I think they probably give you a dimension as a starting point to mount it, to get it sort of in the general ballpark, but then you have to flight test it. And so go go look in the manual first and see if there's a procedure. If there isn't, do it anyway. You're going to have to. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for the advice. It sounds like there's uh, several flight tests in my future then. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Good excuse to go flying, absolutely. Put your NASA cap on. <laughs> That's right. You are now a test pilot. Test pilot. Love it. <laughs> Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. So our next question comes from Jason, uh, who's kind of in the middle of a long process uh, with his engine with some sealant. Uh, Jason, what's going on? Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I've got a 1967 Cessna 182 Kilo with a uh, 0470. And um, during an oil change uh, last December, I noticed during the engine change, I noticed that um, there was a fracture in the engine mount. So we ended up uh, with my um, AMP, pulled the engine out, and that gave a great opportunity to uh, take a look, a close look at the engine. We sent the engine mount out to Laurier. Those folks do a fantastic job out there. But gave us an opportunity to really take a close look at the engine on an engine stand. And uh, with cleaning it up, we noticed that the front nose through bolts, the 716 bolts, appeared to have some sealant coming out from behind the spacers of the bolts. 
And um, we used a pick, like a dental pick in there, and it did seem somewhat elastic-y. <laughs> and so um, with a, a lot of deliberation, an email to ask the AMPs, uh, just trying to determine what the next course of action might be and, and try to introduce the least amount of risk into the equation here, um, we did decide to pull one of the through bolts. And what we found was that the spacers that were on there, they had a um, recession within them, which I understand were the former spacers that accepted an O-ring in there. And it appears that when the engine was assembled, that perhaps some sort of sealant was put in there in place. So we, uh, we did contact Continental and got some guidance from them. They did recommend that the uh, through bolts um, be replaced. The new through bolts now are uh, the ones that have the O-rings on them. So there's grooves within the through bolts to accept some O-rings. The bolts that are in the engine now do not have those O-rings. And then um, put new um, nuts and spacers on there. So that's our next step. It was found on the front two through bolts, uh, the 716s, and then the through bolts for number six cylinder, the front two there, not on the cylinder head side, but on the opposite side with the, uh, with the um, spacers on them. So I, this is a family-owned airplane, right? It, it was, yeah. yep. It's been in the family for over 30 years. So I'm just wondering, uh, who noticed the oil leak that caused someone to go in there with uh, with the orange RTV? And Or do you think this was done when the engine was put together? I think it was done during yeah. assembly. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Interesting. It, 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 um, that was part of our investigating here was to see... Um, was it RTV put on afterwards and maybe smeared over the top? But, you know, after a lot of looking, it, it looked like it was coming from behind. It didn't appear excessive, but some, any is excessive, I guess, in this situation. But it seemed like um, that either, I, I don't know at the time when the engine was rebuilt, whether or not they had the solid spacers and they should have been upgraded to the solid spacers, or if there should have been the O-rings placed in there versus some sort of sealant. Interesting. I, I, I know a mechanic made a special tool just so he could pressure RTV into these <laughs> bolts to stop leaks. Just, just, just saying, I you know, kind of went off. And as I do, I have to go off in the wrong direction first. But when, when, you, when you pulled the through bolts and I... The, the RTV was near the threaded end of the through bolt, not near the center, correct? So the RTV was on the spacer near the center of the through bolt where there's a recession in that spacer. So if you look at the spacer, right, you take the spacer off and it, the RTV was closer to the inside diameter of that, to the, the ID of that uh, spacer. Right, um, um, but towards the end of the through bolt, not not where the through bolt goes through the the, the parting seam of the case. Absolutely the not. Correct. Okay. Because yep. that 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 would be my big concern if if I thought that maybe somebody assembled the case with sealant in there. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that would be like a huge huge issue if they if they just if they just put sealant on those spacers. Although that's not a good idea, obviously. It, it's easily fixable. It's not something that's ca- going to cause anything, any permanent problem. Okay, we did boroscope those uh, the opening there where the through bolt was taken out, and um, no signs, no nothing unusual in there. It looked mm-hmm. pretty clean. 
So, Mike, you're saying he doesn't have to split the case in this case. He just right. he's concerned I, I about so. torque on those bolts. Right. I, I think I think replacing the through bolts with nice clean ones and retorquing everything and not not using any sealant was is going to solve the problem. Yeah. yeah but I you mean, never you never want to use sealant because when you torque things down, that sealant can extrude into places that it should not be in. Especially if you pressurize it in there. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it sounds like it was a good catch catching that broken engine mount. Nice job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, um, uh, it was a black engine mount. And um, so it, it took some close looking to find that. But uh, got it out to Laurier. They did a phenomenal job. It came back gray. So nice and easy to spot any discrepancies on it moving forward. Mm. And then, like I said, gave me a, a great opportunity to go through the engine with a fine tooth comb. We were able to update um, hoses, clean it up, uh, hardware, new engine baffles, things like that. Yeah. Take care of the family heirloom. I love it. <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> All right. Jason, thanks for the call. You enjoyed it. Appreciate right. your time, guys. Good luck. Thanks. Our next question is from Bruce, who's breaking in some new cylinders. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, um, I did a flight from Leadville to Furnace Creek a week ago and noticed my oil consumption had doubled. <laughs> and in chasing that down, found two cylinders that were starting to get weak. So I'm going to replace all six. This is on a Continental O300. And so I wondered what the break-in process would be for these new cylinders. The opinions on the web are varied and annoying and then just <laughs> as an aside less, you don't think we're gonna be less varied and less annoying yeah. do you no but you will be far more entertaining <laughs> you personally paul <laughs> yeah thanks just as an aside i recently was with a friend i took him down to a motorcycle dealer to pick up his new motorcycle and one of the braking instructions they gave him was not to run the engine at steady rpm for the first 600 miles I thought, well, that's a weird recommendation. I'd never heard that before, so I threw that in there. I've heard that. Yeah, that is weird, though. My my first concern is that you're replacing all six cylinders when you only have two that are giving trouble. But I'm going to slide past that for just a second. And I would, this is my normal response to new cylinders, is I would, hopefully you have an engine monitor, Follow the exact instructions. You say you're putting on, I think, superior cylinders. Is that what you're doing? That's correct. If you install superior cylinders, I would break them in exactly like superior says and have the engine data to back it up. So if and when there's some sort of warranty issue, you have proof that you did it exactly like they wanted it done. Hmm. <laughs> Are you suggesting something, Paul? <laughs> Is there a... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I, I will say Superior is wonderful to work with. Yeah. Uh, so if there ever is a problem, they will definitely work with you. No problem there. But that's my general rule of thumb with breaking in because almost all the break-in procedures are loosely based the same. But if a manufacturer has a procedure, they have reasons for that, and you have reason in terms of warranty to follow that procedure. So is that procedure in the box, or do I need to hunt that down on the web? It should be in the box. If it isn't, you can certainly call Superior. And Bill Ross is there. He would be happy to tell you what their uh, procedure is. Great guy. Uh, I'm sure they will have it in print somewhere as well. 
that wasn't very entertaining. I'm sorry. I'm still I'm still concerned about him replacing all six <laughs> cylinders. Okay, let's get to the you, point. You need, need to be very very careful about how you do that. Yes, and why? The the why? Uh, the the best way to replace all six cylinders is to replace them in pairs, uh, where you you take off the two cylinders that share a pair of through bolts, you put the new cylinders on, torque everything up, then do the next pair, and then do the final pair. If you don't do it that way, if you want, want to take all the old cylinders off first, then you need to use torque plates to make sure that that you don't ever have more than one pair of through bolts torque relieved at any at any particular time. And don't rotate the crankshaft when when through bolts are torque relieved. The the problem that we're worried about is that the the through bolts, you know, do triple duty. They they hold on two cylinders and they also hold the case together. And in holding the case together, they want they're, they're clamping the the main bearings in place. So when you torque relieve the through bolts, there isn't a whole lot holding the main bearings in place. And then if you turn the crankshaft, there's a possibility of displacing the, the bearing because it's not being uh, clamped properly. So it's a relatively small risk if you're replacing just one cylinder, but if you're replacing all the cylinders and and you do it the way a lot of mechanics do it, which is simply to take all, all the nuts off and pull all the cylinders off. And now the engine is being held together with chewing gum and spit. That's not a good thing to do. Also, I highly recommend replacing the hold-down nuts, especially the through-stud nuts. Go ahead and put new ones on. They're not oh, absolutely. that expensive. Yeah, yeah all, the, all the nuts should be new. And the, the fasteners, the, both the studs and the through-bolts, need to be slathered with lubricant when you, when you put the new nuts on so you're torquing them wet. Continental recommends using regular engine oil, uh, which isn't a particularly good lubricant. Lycoming recommends a mixture of 90% engine oil and 10% STP, but there are actually some special purpose lubricants designed specifically for lubricating threads when you're torquing uh, high-stress fasteners, and I might want to consider using using that. Okay, thank you, and thank Thank you you very much for your insights. Thank you. Enjoyed the call. Appreciate the question. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode under wrap. We know a lot more about maintenance than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. Give us your ideas on what you'd like us to talk about. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun out there. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.